is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello, good afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you for the Country Hour today, streaming online on the ABC Listen app or via the podcast, with Australia taking on the West Indies at the cricket in Perth today. We're going to chat about the Atomic Energy Act of 1953. Why? Well, because Federal Parliament has passed changes to the Act, which have big implications for the rehab of the old Ranger uranium mine near Jabiru. Significant challenges remain about the rehabilitation of the Ranger facility. Uh, The cost alone is not yet known. The timeline is not yet known. We know it's beyond 2026. How long? Well, we say as long as it takes. And you're off to the Catherine River. With all the rainfall you've been seeing around the place, the river's risen more than two metres, so local rangers are getting busy pulling in the croc traps. But numbers have been down in 2022. We have caught seven saltwater crocodiles around the Catherine region. We have five caught in the Catherine River itself, one in the Ferguson River and um, one in the Flora River. If you want to get in touch this afternoon, 0487 991057 is the SMS. First up today, though, Sea Farms, the company that had big plans to build a huge prawn farm out on the NTWA border, has put out an update on the project. It's been a turbulent year for the company with a scathing review labelling Project Sea Dragon plans unviable back in March. Dan Fitzgerald joins me in the studio. Just before we get to this latest review, Dan, can you remind us of the review that was released back in March? Yeah, so that one was handed down by then CEO Mick McMahon. It declared that Project Sea Dragon was not viable in its current form. It said that the project in its current form would not generate acceptable financial returns. It involved unacceptable risk to do with things like biosecurity, environmental conditions, remoteness, and that the grow-out ponds were unproven in Australia in terms of the sheer scale that they wanted to do. Um, So Mick McMahon, he actually apologised to shareholders when he presented those findings, and not long afterwards he resigned following pressure from one of the directors of the company, Um, Following that, in May, Rod Dyer was appointed as CEO of the company and they launched a whole new review um, of Project Sea Dragon. Yeah, right. So so what's the new review found? Yeah, so today Sea Farms held its annual general meeting where it presented the findings, uh, which had looked at the key challenges to Project Sea Dragon and it found that there is no technical reason why the project should not proceed. Uh, In a statement, CEO Rod Dyer said the assessment validated the effectiveness of large-scale prawn farms, hatcheries and packing, and the viability of the 10-hectare pond size. Uh, He said after visiting overseas operations, the company believes that the previously identified technical risks can be managed. Uh, In that briefing, it outlined a farm in Ecuador that it says has ponds up to the size of 19 hectares in size, bigger than those 10 hectares for Project Sea Dragon. Um, So we're seeing um, a bit of an about face here Mm. Um, back in March, said it was unviable, but this new latest review said it can go ahead and it can overcome those challenges. Um, Sea Farm says it's now progressing the financial and business case for modelling for the project as the next step in determining the future of what it all happens. And 
um, a decision on the future is expected in early next year. Um, so not off the cards. Not off the cards as of yet. Uh, we'll wait and see this this space. Um, we have a request and an interview with Sea Farms, but they haven't put anybody forward today. Well, hopefully they, they do at some point. A lot of questions about that. But thank you, Dan. It is 25 to 1. Hello, my name's Tom Farrar. I'm a ranger over on Groot Island, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Good to have you along streaming today while the cricket is on analogue radio. The Federal Parliament has passed an important amendment to the Atomic Energy Act of 1953, and it has big implications for the rehabilitation of the former Ranger uranium mine near Jabiru. Energy Resources of Australia's lease on the mine site was due to end in 2026, And by law, it was supposed to have cleaned up the result of 40 years' worth of mining by that date. But both the company and traditional owners have acknowledged that wasn't enough time for the massive rehab job. Justin O'Brien from the Gunjagmi Aboriginal Corporation explains. The arrangements at the Ranger Uranium Mine were made during the era of the Cold War and the defence powers of the Commonwealth were used to mine uranium against the wishes of the traditional owners using the Atomic Energy Act. What occurred was an arbitrary deadline for completion of the project, which at the time was half owned by the Commonwealth, was set and then renewed two decades after that. This is the arrangements in the 70s, renewed two decades later by the Howard government. Those arrangements were such that uh, ERA had no access to the mining area, the Ranger project area, post January 2026. Now, unlike in the rest of the, the world where you have a uh, you know, relinquishment of your mining tenement based on uh, progressive works uh, to rehabilitate to the standard that the regulator agrees, um, Ranger was you know, a set arbitrary deadline, bang, January 2026. And we have been, the GAC and the Mirar traditional owners, uh, incessant, uh, over a decade, saying that um, the, the hundreds of millions of, sorry, the millions of tons of of waste rock, the billions of contaminated um, liters of, of contaminated tailings and, and and water out there will need a lot more than five years to rehabilitate. You see, the mining ended in twenty twenty was you know twenty twenty one was the whole plan. The whole mineral processing and everything ends in twenty twenty one and then rehabilitation to be complete by the time this arbitrary deadline closes access in January 2026. Five years was never enough. It was an absurd thing. Um, It's not, you know, um, know, in sympathy with what happens elsewhere in the the industry. So you needed to go into the Atomic Energy Act, which provides the authority to provide access to ERA beyond the date of 2026. Yeah, and that had to be changed by the Parliament. Um, it was supported by ERA. All groups wanted it to happen. What was the amendment and, and when has that pushed things out to? What does it mean for the rehabilitation now? Well, it means that we can begin the real work. We wanted this legislation 10 years ago. Successive governments of different political persuasions have had us knocking at their door saying, this needs to be done, this needs to be done because it is the trigger for the uh, enabling agreements to be negotiated. 
Remember, this is Aboriginal land underneath the range of project area. So in order to access Aboriginal land, you need an, a, an access agreement, a, an Aboriginal Land Rights Act agreement. There are uh, ancillary and associated agreements around that, annexed to it and, and you know, that sit beside it and whatnot, but with, with the Commonwealth, with the NLC, with the mining company, et cetera, et cetera, that all need to be renegotiated at the same time. So that's now the real work that needs to begin. We sit down with the Commonwealth, with the mining company, with the traditional owners and provide access through an Aboriginal Land Rights Act agreement, which last time we did that only took 13 years. We do not have 13 years now. We've got, you know, two. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot, you know, we've, we've been left with a very, very difficult situation here. What it does mean is there is the ability now for ERA to apply for uh, access beyond the term, beyond the 2026 term. Uh, so there's an, uh, some more certainty there. And will there be uh, will there be a new deadline set as to when rehabilitation needs to be completed by, or will it be open ended? Um, there will be another date. What that date will be, I can't tell you now. It'll be subject to negotiating the changes to the authority that's there now, which is now possible because of these amendments. Will it so, like roughly? So will, it, will it be decades? Are we talking or or years? You ask me, I think it would be decades. This is a a major disruption in the landscape. It's a there are significant challenges remain about the rehabilitation of the Ranger facility. Uh, the cost alone is not yet known. The timeline is not yet known. We know it's beyond twenty twenty six. How long? Well, we say as long as it takes. Do relinquishment per. The, the satisfactory completion of works, according to the, the regulators here, primarily the Commonwealth regulator. And that might mean many years of water treatment. How many, I, I can't say, but it'll be, subject, it'll be the subject of negotiation. Okay, so there's a, a fair bit of work to do right now negotiating uh, the length of the new tenure with um, ERA. Yeah, that's right. And the scope of the and costing of the rehabilitation works, everything has blown out. Everything has been a dis disastrous. You would never, ever, ever do anything like this ever again. It's just absurd. A couple of months ago, there was a lot of to and fro between ERA and its major shareholder, Rio Tinto, about trying to fund the rehabilitation. What's your understanding about where things are at now? Uh, look, it, it, you know, Rio Tinto uh, joined us in a, a, a critique of the board at the time, in particular the independent board committee, which had overseen a an absurd and unrealistic and technically impossible valuation of ERA. Um, those IBC members and independent directors have left. I understand that one uh, an in, a new independent director was recently appointed. We'd like to meet them. And that, uh, you know, uh, once there's a, a, a sufficient number of uh, independent directors on the new board, uh, that you know, ERA will work with Rio Tinto to address this, this significant shortfall. All we know, Dan, at the moment, is that there is a significant shortfall, that the costing is in the, is in the range of $1.6 to $2.2 billion, uh, and that we won't know um, the precise figure of, of, the, of, the, of the cost of rehab at Ranger until mid next year or so. Now, the ultimate fallback here 
goes to the Commonwealth, which started this thing, which owned 50% of this thing uh, until 1979. Justin O'Brien from Gunjaitmi Aboriginal Corporation. He was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. Minister for Indigenous Australians Linda Burney said in a statement that now the bill has passed, she'll start negotiations on a new land access agreement with the Mirar traditional owners. She said this legislation now gives both ERA and the Mirar traditional owners a line of sight for the land's eventual rehabilitation and return although a full handover is still some years away. We all look forward to seeing Ranger being a world-class example of mine rehabilitation. It's 17 to 1 on the Country Hour. Coming up in just a minute, you'll hear about plans uh, from the government to change the Petroleum Act this week and why native title groups aren't too impressed. First, though, on the Country Hour, this is the Zac Brown Band and Knee Deep. Zach Brown Band and Knee Deep. Hi, I'm Remy Wilton. I'm a ringer at ISA Sound Station, Queensland. I'm 25 and came to this job after playing footy for 20 years. And you're listening to the Country Hour. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. It is 13 to 1. The NT Parliament is getting ready to make changes to the Petroleum Act this week. And one of the things being amended is a provision which would allow petroleum companies to sell gas from exploration wells in the Beetaloo Basin before they have a production licence. Now, this has been met with criticism by a number of stakeholders. Jesse Thompson from ABC News has been looking at this story. Jesse, first of all, can you explain what appraisal gas is and what the NT government is proposing here? Yeah, so the appraisal gas is the gas that's extracted uh, during this phase of fracking that comes before full-scale production, which we don't yet have here in the NT. And basically it's that period where proponents are spending time exploring, looking for gas and assessing the viability of the gas reserves that we have here. And most of that activity in the NT at the moment is, of course, taking place in the Beetaloo Basin, which the government is hoping to open up to production from next year. Now, at the moment, gas that, and there can be quite a lot of it that's extracted during that phase is burned or released into the atmosphere. So one of the rationales that the government has for making this change is to do something with that gas rather than just releasing it. Uh, And what it's proposing is to let gas companies who have those exploration licences actually use or sell this gas. And they said that could be used to uh, power their operations on site, or it could be sold, say, to nearby communities to sort of reduce those scope one emissions that are being burned or released at the point of extraction. So it's being released anyway. They're basically saying let's make some kind of profit or or use the gas so it's not just being burned off. How would that fit under, well, native title rules, for example? That's been one of the interesting points of this legislation uh, and there, there has been a lot of controversy around this, firstly because this idea appears to have first been suggested uh, by in an exploration uh, application 
lodged by a gas company in July. It's, it proposed, uh, as it called it, the beneficial use of gas, so selling or using that gas during this phase. Its application had to be amended because it was unlawful at the time, and now we see the Northern Territory government has brought in legislation to make it lawful. But one other reason that it's become controversial is that native title groups have started to question the legal validity of these laws. Uh, and there's a leading native title lawyer called Greg McIntyre. He's based in Western Australia, and he's most well known for representing Eddie Marbo in his landmark native title case that um, uh, created a significant ruling for native title holders in 1992. And he says that the way this legislation appears to be written should trigger certain provisions under the federal native title legislation. Apologies if this is getting a little bit complex, but essentially it should, it's a significant enough expansion of the rights of those mining companies that it should entitle native title holders to go back to the table and negotiate how this next phase is going to look. Here's Greg McIntyre explaining some of that. My view would be that it goes beyond exploration. It's something which does actually include the taking of the petroleum. It exceeds permits which they already have. It's a new approval, so there's a new decision to be made by the minister. All of that points to it being caught by the provisions of the Native Title Act. That's Greg McIntyre SC saying that the government could actually be required to negotiate with with native title holders under the Native Title Act with uh, this legislation. And I asked him what consequences there would be if the government didn't do that. And he said essentially it would then clash with federal legislation and that would leave the Northern Territory government vulnerable to challenges in the High Court and the Federal Court because of that clash of territory and federal legislation. The Northern and Central Land Councils both aren't happy with the proposed amendments. What's their issue? Yeah, they're also very upset about the way that this has been handled and their complaints are more to do with the process, the consultation process on behalf of the Northern Territory Government here. Uh, And the Northern Land Council says it's been blindsided. I know the Central Land Council was seeking an urgent meeting with the Chief Minister earlier this week. It had concerns that the legislation could in some ways write native title holders and traditional owners out of this process and erode their rights. So it was seeking a meeting, which it had yesterday with Mining and Industry Minister Nicole Madison. The Northern Land Council put out a media release yesterday afternoon and um, really expressed these concerns in some of the strongest terms that I've ever seen from that land council. It has accused the Northern Territory government of essentially letting uh, of stealing gas and handing it to gas companies under the way that these laws will work. Uh, and it says there's been no consultation around these laws and it's going to have to have a really close look at existing exploration agreements in this space. But it's also called on the, on the Northern Territory government to pause this particular clause of this bill. What's the government had to say in response to to some of that? Look, the government is saying that everything has been done by the book and that its legislation has been subject to robust processes. It says it met with the land councils yesterday to discuss these concerns. Um, And it says that uh, it's going to negotiate basically agreements or gas companies will have to get the agreement of traditional owners and native title holders before they start selling this gas. Uh, It has also said that this will only take place from next year once all of the recommendations of a wide-ranging fracking inquiry are in place. And nonetheless, it intends to progress this legislation, which is due for debate in Northern Territory Parliament today or tomorrow and is likely to pass after that happens.
And what about the the gas industry? Has it responded? It has. Look, APIA, the peak gas body, has welcomed the changes. It's said that there's similar legislation in place in some other states in Australia. Uh, and it says that it's a good way to put some of that gas to use rather than just releasing it. Uh, and I believe other gas companies have welcomed the change as well. Jesse Thompson, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. He's a reporter with ABC News. And if you want to read more on that story, just jump online and search ABC News. Just sticking with the new laws for the onshore gas industry, the NT Parliament has just passed changes to incorporate chain of responsibility provisions to regulate fracking. Here's the Environment Minister, Lauren Moss, introducing the bill a short time ago. Mr Speaker, any petroleum industry operator that is compliant with their statutory obligations and any related person of that operator has nothing to fear from these laws. They're simply an additional and further compliance and enforcement tool designed to protect territory taxpayers from the costs of cleaning up environmental harm by ensuring those persons that have profited from the activity that caused the harm also bear the costs of its associated rehabilitation and remediation. These laws complement the polluter pays principle, the commonly accepted practice that those who produce pollution should bear the cost of managing it to prevent damage to the environment and to human health. Mr Speaker, I don't um, pretend that these laws will be able to solve all of the challenges that can arise as a result of complex corporate structures, corporate insolvency and negligent behaviours that may lead to environmental liabilities being inherited by the ter territory taxpayer. However, they do assist in mitigating these risks and provide a clear message to individuals and companies about how the Territory expects industry to operate, and that is to comply with our environmental laws, avoid and minimise environmental harm, and remediate and rehabilitate the environment in accordance with your statutory obligations. Lauren Moss is the NT's Environment Minister speaking in Parliament this morning. Pastoralists across Australia now have free access to satellite imagery that will show you how much feed you have in your paddock. The initiative has come from Meat and Livestock Australia and it claims to be world-first technology, which records feed mass every five days. It's showing pasture mass at a one-hectare resolution for levy payers. MLA teamed up with ag data analytics company Sebo Labs, based in Queensland, and co-founder Phil Tickle says it will help producers match stocking rates to pasture availability. This is uh, you know, some world-first technology to provide um, every um, livestock producer in Australia with access to objective information on their feed base. So on a monthly basis, how many kilograms of dry matter they've got, how it's changing over time, how it compares to the same time last year or last month, uh, and how they match their, uh, their stocking rates to the carrying capacity on their farm. So this is going to have direct financial benefit? It's really about you know, early decision making. So uh, we've done uh, surveys and looked at um, you know, people uh, you know, running out of feed and having to make um, sort of late decisions uh, at the wrong time and, and uh, losing money on trades, for example. Um, and this is going to provide them with some objective information to, to really make informed, more, more informed, more objective decisions. Is any of the data you've got available now um, historic? Are people able to, to already compare uh, trends year on year? Yeah, so uh, we've um, we've processed data back to early 2017, which is when the uh, this particular satellite data became available, uh, and then we've developed uh, or collected thousands of um, of uh, pasture biomass assessments around Australia. Um, a lot of those 
collected by producers themselves to um, to calibrate the models uh, uh, to, for providing you know, reliable estimates of um, of dry matter on a farm. So they've got um, straight up, they've actually got uh, data back to 2017 on a monthly basis. Please tell me that right now it looks a picture of green over most of Australia. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And there's lots of places that have got more than double the um, the, uh, the you know the partial they would normally have at this time of the year. And of course, you're a satellite junkie, but Phil Tickle, you must have been watching the New South Wales Victorian floods. Tell us what it looks like from a satellite perspective. Um, well, quite often we <laughs> quite often we actually can't see through the uh, through the clouds um, when we, when there is flooding events. So of course, um, you know, so you know, there's limitations there. But um, certainly, in the Gulf floods. Um, uh, a few years ago, we were you know, got lucky in the, sort of a day after the floods and were able to image that. Uh, and similarly, this, there has been imaging over Victoria, but um, it's pretty horrifying seeing those landscapes go under. Um, and I suppose from our perspective, what we can do is then help people um, understand you know, how, those, how those areas recover over time. And obviously, um, forestry thickening. Do these satellites show those kind of differences too over time? Yeah, so as part of this service, the, um, the producers are getting access to uh, to annual time series data on woody vegetation change, uh, as well as ground cover change on a monthly basis. And and certainly we're sort of seeing uh, seeing a lot of areas. There's a, there's a, there's a net increase in, uh, in woody vegetation cover uh, across most of northern Australia. And just finally, Phil Tickle, where will this information be stored and in any way will it be used beyond the uh, initial means of measuring biomass like could this information be used against the industry for instance now uh, we as a company you know, we're a, we're a self-funded company we're contributing to this uh, to this initiative um, it's a 50/50 uh, co-funded initiative with uh, with MLA the MLA donor company our job is to maintain producer trust um, so that's what we what we succeed on um, so uh, what we're all about here now is providing the best information possible to producers to represent their industry uh, and the and the stakeholders in that industry Phil Tickle is the co-founder of SIBO Labs, which has teamed up with Meat and Livestock Australia to offer its levy payers free access to satellite imagery to help budget their pastures. He was speaking with Amy Phillips. And if you're keen to take a look and access this tool, just head to the MLA website. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC radio, reliable source for information. Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. We're going to head off and get the news for you very shortly. After that, of course, a check-in with the Bureau of Meteorology. And then it's to Catherine to check out the crocodiles in the Catherine River with the rainfall you've seen about recently. The river level has been rising and the croc traps have been pulled out. So you'll hear how that has gone um, for the end of the season. Heading off to the news shortly. It's one o'clock. Lily Rose Carey, I'm 12, and I live on Kalala Station, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yes, you are. Michelle Stanley with you on The Country Hour today. Good to have you along. In just a tick, you'll get a bit more info on that evolving story with croc wrangler Matt Wright. We'll get a little bit more info about that shortly. And it's off to Catherine. We have caught seven saltwater crocodiles 
around the Catherine region. We have five caught in the Catherine River itself, one in the Ferguson River and um, one in the Flora River. Yeah, you'll hear just how that compares to previous years pretty shortly as well. It is six past one on ABC Radio. Good to have you along today. Let's get some weather now. Moses Rayco is with me from the Bureau of Meteorology. Hello. Good afternoon, Michelle. Was there an awful lot of rain last night? It's been a wet few days. Yeah, there has uh, been some good rainfalls uh, recorded at a number of sites across the top end. The highest that we've actually got there, I think, would be Gove, uh, Nullumboy there, 94 millimetres cool. to 9am this morning. And we've got, got some other good falls um, around Adelaide River, 90 millimetres. And uh, along the north coast, 70 millimetres at Manning Greta, Middle Point, um, 65 millimetres, Nightcliff pool are there 63 millimetres so some good falls um, in even including uh, around the uh, Darwin area too so it looks as though uh, Michelle he's probably seeing a little reprieve from those showers and storms for a little while anyway um, we've actually got a trough that's probably pushed just offshore into the uh, just off the north coast there and it's probably just leaning kind of westwards as well across the Van Diemen Gulf just off the um, the north uh, Daly coast there so it has pushed north now and behind that trough to the south of that trough we're looking at some drier air um, uh, pushing northwards so definitely some a change drier conditions uh, been felt no doubt around places like Catherine and we're expecting during the day uh, this afternoon that we will see that dry air starting to push uh, northwards over the Daly District and probably extending right across a good portion of the top end by tomorrow as that um, trough moves further north. So I is it those mention... conditions, or oh, you're probably about to mention it, those conditions yep. that are creating that fire weather warning? Yeah, so that's that's right. So behind that trough, we're seeing those uh, dry and windy conditions. And because of those clearer skies, we're seeing those temperatures starting to creep up. So a combination of those three things, windy, dry and sunny, hot, uh, hotter conditions, uh, combining to see some um, extreme fire danger ratings around the Catherine area, generally speaking. Uh, and that looks like it will play out again tomorrow. So we probably will issue another fire weather warning for tomorrow for the same area. Um, potentially drier tomorrow, uh, broadly speaking, but the winds might ease off a little, um, just marginally. So n not expecting any rainfall overnight today? Uh, no, not overnight. So the only places we may see some rainfall potentially would be the far northeastern parts of the top end where we may see some, um, yeah, I guess um, uh, evening or early morning activity. But during the day, I dare say by the afternoon, I don't think we'll see much activity at all across the top end. Maybe just a very light isolated shower in the far northern parts of the, um, the top end, maybe the Tiwis, maybe the far northeast coast potentially. But yeah, it's it, that dry air is really going to be pushing right, right across the top end. I should mention, Michelle, we do have that trough, as I said, to the north now um, of the top end. It does lean back and extend towards the southeast into the Gulf of Carpentaria and into Queensland. Yesterday, we did have a weak low, a pretty shallow low at this stage that did develop in that trough. So there is a, a weak low um, 
around the, the Gulf of Carpentaria. We are expecting, though, that uh, that will remain um, relatively weak and ex push further to the east and probably move towards the Cape York Peninsula by tomorrow at some stage. Um, so there is a fair bit of activity if you look at the satellite imagery um, and radar imagery, uh, particularly around the northeastern parts and offshore in particular. Um, to 9 from 9am this morning, Michelle, we have seen a fair bit of rainfall too. Um, Cape Wessels picked up 60 millimetres um, in the last four hours. So there is a, definitely a fair bit of activity offshore there at the moment. Um, also, just to, to point out that given the potential slow-moving nature of some thunderstorms today, they're there is a slight risk we could see some heavy falls, mainly in the north northern parts of the top end or northeastern parts of the top end today, but that's just a slight risk, so just something to, to be aware of. And you still have that strong wind warning out for the Gove Peninsula coast as well, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So this is um, right out over um, eastern Arafura Sea, just north of the, the Gulf of Carpentaria, getting some pretty fresh northwesterly winds. So there is a coastal wind warning current at the moment, um, well offshore from Gove, um, but nonetheless, some fresh winds across our um, northern coastal waters. Michelle's there, so looking at, you know, um, uh, west to southwesterly winds reaching up to 20 knots across the Arafura, uh, Roper Group Coast, south to southeasterly, 15 to 20 knots. So uh, there are some fresh winds about our north and east coasts. Um, the winds across our west coast are generally speaking a little bit lighter. We've currently got a south to southeasterly flow at the moment around Darwin, but we may see the sea breeze kick in um, potentially a little bit later this afternoon. And how about the next few days in central Australia? Yeah, so across the central and southern districts, there's not much change to the story other than uh, temperatures just gradually creeping up, Michelle, uh, as we head towards the weekend. Um, generally sunny conditions are going to be prevailing as a result of a pretty firm ridge that will maintain its presence right through central Australia, including the Territory, as we head into the weekend. Um, yeah, so we probably will start to see some very hot conditions return to some of those central districts, potentially by as early as Friday and extending towards the east. So by early next week, you know, all the way from Borolula um, up to the border there with Kununurra down to uh, maybe the Granites, Tennant Creek, we might start to see some, you know, 40 degrees or plus temperatures being being experienced in, in that part of the Territory. Um, so some, some very hot conditions probably returning there um, as we move forward into early parts of next week. In the top end though, Michelle, probably not seeing um, much thunderstorm activity now until potentially early next week. Uh, generally speaking, some, some sunny skies and hot to very hot conditions, you know, uh, returning particularly places in the southern parts of the top end around Catherine. Well, better um, settle in for that. Moses, thanks yeah. for your time today. You're welcome. He's from the Bureau of Meteorology, Moses Rayco. It's 13 past one. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash ntgives to donate today. It's 13 past one. Good to have you along today.
Crocodile wrangler Matt Wright has been granted bail after appearing in the Darwin local court this morning. He was charged yesterday with a range of offences, including attempting to pervert the course of justice. That's relating to an investigation into a helicopter crash that killed his friend and colleague Chris Willow-Wilson earlier this year. Miles Holbrook-Walk from ABC News has been following the story. What happened in Darwin local court this morning, Miles? Well, Michelle, we had a situation where basically Matt Wright had come before court before the first time ever. Now, an arrest warrant was issued uh, for him on Monday to his legal team, and he wasn't in the Northern Territory at the time, so it was issued by local police. He then returned yesterday at the airport through to Darwin and handed himself into police not long after he was charged. He was given bail overnight. That was a temporary bail. Then today, what was basically being tested is, would he be granted bail from now until his next uh, time in court, which is a preliminary examination mention, what that basically means from legalese to normal, uh, I guess, lingo as we would speak on the street, is that basically when a, a case comes before the court and we see some initial assessments made. But in this bail hearing here today on the seven criminal charges brought against him, the judge did decide to grant him bail and the DPP, who were the people prosecuting this case, they had a few conditions they wanted to put on it, including restrictions on who he can contact, also the residences he can attend while in the Northern Territory, as well as some other conditions that we don't actually know yet. Now, I I understand that those conditions will be made public sometime today. Exactly when that is does still remain to be seen. It's going to be something that uh, certainly many of the, I think I counted about 27 camera operators, photographers and reporters from networks all across Australia who aren't necessarily always in the top end uh, coming and waiting uh, eagerly to see uh, what those conditions are, including what the surety might be in that sense of the money that Matt Wright would need to provide as um, a surety for his bail. Yeah, there's quite the action happening outside the courtroom. Um, In terms of the the people he isn't allowed to contact, do we know who they are and, and how they're involved? We, we don't know who they are at the moment. Uh, we do know that other people have had these kind of conditions put before them on the court, including one man who also has been charged over this fatal crash, and that is Mick Burbage. He's also uh, had conditions restricting who he can have contact with. Uh, now, um, there, there was quite an exhaustive list, and I'm, I'm not going to rattle them all off, but it, it will be interesting once we have that list uh, uh, released for what, who and who he can't speak with, Matt Wright, uh, and... Um, seeing how all that will look uh, for him. There'll also be other conditions too around uh, certain properties he may or may not be able to visit. Again, we don't know mm-hmm. what those properties will be, but that will uh, again be another one to watch. Yeah, and and this has all just happened in the last couple of hours, so it's very much an evolving story. Now, Matt, Matt Wright's lawyer gave a short statement. What did he have to say? Yeah, David New is one of two of his lawyers. He's also being represented by Greg Jones. Both are from out of town. In fact, they're based in Sydney typically. And David Newey essentially professed his client's innocence and referenced a regulatory investigation into the helicopter that did crash. Important to note, Matt Wright wasn't on board. And as David Newey says here, he strenuously denies any wrongdoing. Matt Wright strenuously denies these charges and will be defending them. He is naturally disappointed that the charges have been laid as a result of what was a tragic accident that took the life of Matt's closest friend, Chris Wilson. Regulatory regulatory investigations have found no defect in the helicopter engine. The aircraft was flown following an inspection by independent aviation experts a few weeks before who cleared the helicopter to fly. Matt requests that the media 
respect his privacy and that of Chris Wilson and the family and the privacy of his wife who has recently given birth to his daughter only a few weeks ago. Thank you. I won't be taking any questions. That is Matt Wright's lawyer, David Newey. Now, uh, you're hearing from Miles Holbrook-Walk from ABC News. He's been following the story of crocodile wrangler Matt Wright, who's been granted bail after appearing in Darwin local court this morning. And I believe there were some intense scenes at the airport in Darwin yesterday when Matt Wright flew in from Queensland. What were things like outside the court this morning? Uh, Michelle, if we can just start on his return to uh, the Territory, because as you point out, they were quite intense and we we might go to the court as well just a moment later. But when he came to the airport, he was surrounded by at least four, if you can imagine, quite uh, well-built men uh, who came out with him almost like an entourage. And essentially, they kind of pushed and shoved their way through this press pack, which was much smaller than the one this morning at the courtroom. But I I was on site there and the ABC's published some of the footage online so people can see from themselves on on our news websites if they'd like to. It really is a commotion that I had not expected to anticipate. Uh, Sometimes when a prominent person is leaving either court or uh, arriving into uh, an airport, you know, they, they might have cameras around them, but they usually just walk straight to their car and they continue walking. This was not that case at all. It was definitely some media outlets have described it as a scuffle as well and um, it's certainly one I would say that uh, if people are interested in seeing the vision uh, it's on the ABC's website. Today at court far more muted. It was just Matt, his lawyer, uh, another woman who was supporting him who was not his wife. I think it's worth saying it wasn't Kaya Wright who was by his side, but the three of them walked into court in a far more mild manner. There was no people uh, standing in front of Matt Wright pushing out at uh, reporters or camera operators or anything of the such like there was yesterday. So far more uh, paired back. Uh, They got into a car and then departed the scene uh, this morning after a few questions. The only words Matt Wright has said, at least in the public sphere at this point is uh, going home. And that's what he said just as he... Now, I imagine that's shorthand for I'm going home as he got into the car when he was peppered with a whole bunch of reporters asking him questions, saying all manner of things to him, asking him all manner of things, how he was, what he made of the charges, etc., etc. And to that, he just said, going home. Yeah, right. Well, what happens next for him, for Matt Wright? So Matt Wright's next hearing is in January. It's on the 25th. And that's what we talked about earlier, Michelle, a preliminary examination mention. Uh, Essentially, it's the very early stages of this case. Where it may end up, including into the Northern Territory Supreme Courts, does still remain to be seen. What it does mean is that from between now, December and January, we will see nothing essentially happening in the public domain in the courts. There are a few things we've flagged earlier, like the bail conditions, which have been applied for to be made public by the ABC and many other media outlets. As well, there are some documents that need to be filed to court uh, two weeks before his uh, first uh, mention uh, comes, or his next mention, I should say, comes back up in January 25. And he does have a a series of bail conditions, but he will remain a free man uh, until that next uh, PEM. And you you do expect those bail conditions will be released? It's the understanding of the ABC that that is the case. Sometimes these things do change, so I, I wouldn't bet my life or my mortgage or anything in between on it, but it's uh, it's certainly my understanding, the understanding of other reporters that that is likely to be the case. We'll have to keep uh, up to date with that. Thank you for that, Miles. Always a pleasure, Michelle. Miles Holbrook from ABC News who's been following the story of Matt Wright, the crocodile wrangler who's been granted bail after appearing in the Darwin local court this morning.
Uh, so we will keep you up to date with that story as more information comes to light. Let's have a bit of music now. This is Luke Bryan, hunting, fishing, loving every day. Luke Bryan, hunting, fishing, loving every day. It's 24 past one. Now, with all the recent rainfall, the Catherine River has riven, risen over two metres and local rangers have been busy pulling in saltwater crocodile traps ahead of the wet season to stop them getting damaged in strong currents. There are up to 15 croc traps in the Catherine River and all have now been removed Ranger Casey Stacy Kessner says there have been fewer crocs caught across the region this year. We have caught seven saltwater crocodiles around the Catherine region. We have five caught in the Catherine River itself, one in the Ferguson River and um, one in the Flora River. Okay, and how does that compare to, to past years here? Past years, um, you know, last year they caught up to 16 saltwater crocodiles in the Catherine region. And in 2018 was the highest number of saltwater crocodiles, which was 23. Right, so seven, that's well down on compared to some of those previous years. Yeah, it is down. Um, I think that's credit probably to, um, you know, the great crocodile management plan that we've um, implemented in the Catherine region. The wildlife rangers work hard at... Um, you know, removing saltwater crocodiles. Um, but it could also be an indication that, you know, we had a really poor wet season last year and maybe it was a tad harder for the crocodiles to move up the river. But we know that when they're hungry and they're looking for a mate that they will do, um, they will move. And is that what they're doing at the moment now that the water levels are rising? Yeah, it's definitely easier with the water um, levels rising for them to move um, upstream. And what happens with croc movements then over the wet season? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we rely on sightings from the public and, you know, we have some floats still in to indicate where saltwater crocodile movement is happening, but we know that crocodiles move around and so it's really important to be crocwise always around the Catherine River. Um, and at Nipmuc National Park we will possibly catch saltwater crocodiles, which means they've moved all the way from the daily up into the gorge system. Why do they move so much at this time of year? It's their breeding season, so they're really hungry. They've done a dry season. Being reptiles, they've gone off their food when it got a little bit chilly in Catherine. And um, as their build-up and the heat's hit, they're hungry, and they're also looking for a mate. So lots of movement. And does that make them particularly risky at this time of year then? Absolutely. Yeah, um, the data with uh, interactions with crocodile increases October onwards. So the data tells us when there's incidents between people and crocodiles, it is around their breeding season. And so your advice, obviously, is to, to stay well away from the water, um, but you've brought me down to low level here near Catherine, a particular spot of concern. Why have you taken me here? This is a very popular swimming spot in the Catherine region, and we have lots of signs up around the area explaining the risk and the danger of swimming in this area. People still continue to do it. So it's really important that we get the message out there that the area has changed. It's really dirty water. The current is very fast and it's really dangerous to enter this area. You need to stay five metres back from the water's edge to remain safe from a saltwater crocodile. 
And I believe there was even a sighting here, at least on social media, someone had mentioned uh, recently about a croc sighting just near where we're standing. Yeah, there's a confirmed sighting at low level of a saltwater crocodile, a confirmed sighting at high level bridge of a saltwater crocodile, and we have a float remaining in that area as an indicator um, to show us that where the crocs are moving. And uh, there's an unconfirmed sighting at Knott's Crossing. Right, so the traps will come in over the wet season, but there'll be a few floats around still to give you an indication of croc movements and maybe the particularly feisty ones. Absolutely, yeah. We will always monitor the area. We've got floats and the wildlife rangers work hard at monitoring the river, but it's really important to understand that us monitoring doesn't mean that there is no saltwater crocodiles in the river. And do the rangers still catch any crocs over the wet season? Yes, if they get a report um, of a saltwater crocodile sighting and there's some evidence of a behaviour that's aggression, aggressive from a saltwater crocodile, they will then um, implement their management techniques, which is probably involves getting a boat in and harpooning and removing the animal if it's deemed a risk to the public. Ranger Stacey Kester speaking there to Max Rowley. <laughs> Time now to head to the markets. Peter Kerr has the details from Dublin in South Australia. There was a larger yarding of 279 mixed cattle. These sold to easing demand provided by the eagle trade processor and feeder buyers, although with one prominent buyer missing. As was generally expected, prices followed recent market trends and values received a 50 to 100 cents per kilogram live weight across all categories. Fuelers to the trade from 450 to 550, store types from 480 to 560. Yearlings to the trade from 350 to 450 cents, store types from 360 to 440. Trade weight cows from 260 to 280 cents, store types from 200 to 230 as heavy bulls range from 220 to 300 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. That is it for me for the Country Hour this Wednesday. Same deal tomorrow in terms of the timing, 12.30 if you're listening on the ABC Listen app and we'll be on your analogue radio in the lunch break at the cricket from 2. I'll catch you next time.